Okay, I want to invite each of you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew as we pick up in chapter 2 where we left off. We'll be reading verses 13 through 23. The Apostle... By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for what it shows us. And Lord, we ask that we would be found faithful in how we handle and respond to every word that you have revealed. Be with us this morning. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. Well, today's passage picks up right after the wise men had visited. And Matthew, the author of this passage, is, is taking us through uh, the infancy, the early years of Jesus, so to speak, and he is keen, since this is a very Jewish gospel, he's keen to underscore at every point how what Jesus is doing or Jesus is experiencing is fulfilling some particular aspect 
of Old Covenant reality. And in today's passage, for example, we trace the journey to Egypt and back, and he tells the story in three small units, each punctuated by a reference to the Old Covenant. And, and I said just a moment ago, when you see it in each of these passages, the word fulfilled. And you, you have to bear in mind when you read these passages, because if you don't bear what I'm about to say in mind, you may be... Uh, dr driven crazy by what you find if you do any academic reading. If you think fulfilled means there was a prediction made that has now come to pass, a prediction that has transpired, an event was foretold and it has come to pass, you will be driven crazy because these passages that he cites are not predictions at all. None of them are. And in fact, as, we, as we'll make our way down, even in the original context, they are looking back in the past. No, you have to understand fulfilled, the concept of fulfilling, in a much more robust manner. In the same way that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Or in the very next chapter that we're going to see, he needs to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, in this passage... He's fulfilling what was written by the prophets. That is to say, he is filling up to full measure the reality that was in mind when the prophet gave his utterance. So what was true in one sense or in a limited sense is now true in the fullest sense because what was foretold by Israel, the imperfect son, is now coming to pass in the experience of Jesus, the faithful Israel. So it is not to say that there was a prediction made. What it's saying is that Jesus, as the faithful, true Israel, is experiencing the redemptive history that the nation went through and he is in his person experiencing it, bringing it to its fullest fruition. Now this passage brings us face to face with the humanity of Jesus. We celebrate at Christmas the incarnation. We just sang of it. With, as man with men to dwell, hail the incarnate deity, we sing, we think, we celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. The wondrous Christological mystery that the eternal Son of God took flesh and became man. As we say in the creeds, truly God, truly man. But yet, unfortunately, because of the way we operate, we focus on his deity to such an extent that when we see passages like this, we, we sort of have a, a wink. Yeah, he wasn't really in any danger. I mean, he's God. He could just vaporize those people with just a thought. I mean, come on. We, we so fall into the rut of his deity that, that we functionally diminish the reality of his humanity. I need you to understand 
the church, your Christian faith, needs you to understand. Your enjoyment of what Christ has procured for you requires that you understand that Jesus really, truly, fully experienced life as a human. He was not like Superman. Superman, think of the comic strip, think of any of the movies, he looks like a person, he talks like a person, most of the time he acts like a person, except for when he doesn't. But make no mistake about it, Superman is not one of us, is he? I, I think of the best Superman movie is the original, the 1978 Superman movie, okay? And, and in, in a... In a feat, in a cinematic feat that was accomplished for the day, near the beginning of the movie, you have an elderly Jonathan and Martha Kent. Uh, I can't remember the actress's name, but the actor who played Jonathan Kent was John Glenn. They're an elderly couple, and they're driving their beat-up old pickup truck down some rural Kansas highway. Do y'all remember the scene? And then suddenly... As they're driving down the highway, Kalel's spaceship pod streams through the sky, hits right next to the road, digs a big furrow in the road. It scares, it scares the daylights out of them. His car, his truck goes off, he flattens his tire, and they're just like, what just happened? And then they go and they look and they discover a perfectly healthy, beautiful little toddler boy climbing out of the wreckage. Remember that? And then they're sitting there discussing, what should we do? And she wants to take him in and claim that he was the child of some relative that passed away. And, and he's like, we can't do that. And, you know, she, he's not from around here. I mean, and, and he's trying to fix his tire. And the jack slips and the truck just about falls on him. And she lunges forward because she thinks her husband's about to get crushed. And then what happens? Little toddler Superman, almost buck naked, is holding the pickup truck up over his head. And John Williams' epic score starts playing in the background. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. You know the score. That is Superman, right? The success of that movie, the success of Spielberg go, is owed to John Williams. But anyway, okay, understand, we, 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 we lapse into a quasi-Superman model when we think of Jesus because he's truly God. He's truly man, which meant that as a baby, he was truly vulnerable. He was truly helpless. He was utterly and completely dependent. And so we see the, the painstaking care that God the Father takes through ordinary providence and supernatural means to protect and preserve not only his his. Son whom he loves dearly. But his entire redemptive purpose and plan. This passage celebrates the ordinary providence. Consider, if you will, 
the fact that three wise men had just visited, depositing very, very substantially valuable gifts. And very likely it's that night that they are told they must run for their lives to Egypt. How else would they have afforded that? Well, now they have the resources. Notice that Jesus has been placed into a family. What if Joseph had not taken her in? What if he had just divorced her? And But yet, Jesus' earthly, his adopted father, is a faithful man who's spiritually sensitive. And notice how Mary, as a wife and mother, is responsive to his leadership. Women, what would you do if your husband woke up in the middle of the night? Babe, an angel of the Lord just came to me. We need to get out of Dodge right now. I, I suspect most of you would balk. Okay? But notice the responsiveness, the trust, the faithfulness. That's ordinary providence. Of, of course, mere, angels showing up to, to sort of direct. That's the supernatural part. But God is protecting his Son, who will be our Savior, and his plan and his purpose. And, and what we're seeing in this passage, I'm not going to read it now, but I want you to make a note to read Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And it depicts the rage of the dragon, which is to say Satan, and how he's poised to consume the child that, that is to rule the nations with an iron scepter. He, he wants to devour the child, but the child is snatched up. And then he seeks to pursue the woman. But the woman is, is given wings and she flies to a place where the Lord... And then, and then the dragon is there to make war against the rest of her children, which are those who believe in the testimony of Jesus and he seeks to first use his mouth, and it's depicted as a flood, but that the use of the mouth represents deception. He uses deception to try to wage war, and he's foiled because the Lord causes the earth to open and to drink the water, and then he uses military might, which is to say persecution. So we see this great wrath of the dragon seeking to destroy the purposes and people of God. And you see that here in this passage. How there's poise ready to destroy. But why is this all here? Because we are here. Our lives are characterized by hardship, by suffering and loss, by pain, by fear. This has been an especially hard eight weeks. So many people have gotten sick, have experienced loss, uh, received bad diagnoses, scary financial circumstances have befallen many. This is, and it's not that this is just a season. This, this is just a, a glimpse of, of life. Each of us, at some point, has experienced injustice, been on the receiving end of malice. Each of us 
And the Lord wants you to know that he's been there. In fact, so zealous was our father to ensure that our Lord, our elder brother, would be thoroughly and intimately, experientially aware of the frailty, the tenuousness of human life. That you would say, you could say in one sense, he, he humanly speaking, stacked the deck against his own son. He made it as hard as possible. And here's what I mean. If you look in verses 13 through 15, you see that Jesus, as a mere toddler, he has to experience the hardship of being, of experiencing exile. His own son experiences exile. His parents, they take him and they flee to a foreign country, about 120 miles away to the border. Egypt at that time would have been a very relatively safe haven. If you go back about 280 years to the time of Alexander, Alexander conquered Egypt and he did what all good conquerors do. He founded a city in his name, Alexandria. It exists to this day. When he died and his four generals divided up his empire, General Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, General Ptolemy took over Egypt and he became the king of Egypt. And he was very uh, open-minded. He, he was a Greek, but he enabled and facilitated the prospering of the Jews who were there. He was very kind to the Jews, especially compared to the Seleucids. But in Egypt, a great thriving Jewish center of learning was developed. And in fact, it's where the Septuagint was translated into the Greek by 70 Jewish scholars. At the time of Christ, there was about one million Jews living in Egypt. So a thriving place. Can anyone tell me who the last Ptolemaic ruler was? Anyone know? Cleopatra. That's right. The Cleopatra of of Elizabeth Taylor fame. (laughs) Right? She was a real person. She was not African. She was not sub-Saharan. She was Greek. She was the last. And this this is how these people were. They conquered a place and they ruled it for 200 years. They didn't even bother to learn the language. Cleopatra was the first and last Ptolemaic ruler to bother to learn Egyptian. Anyway, just a little. The trivia you get when you're here. But Jesus and his family are running for their lives to a country where they know they'll have some degree of safety. Because it isn't the empire that's out to get them. It's, it's this provincial king and they make it to Egypt where they spend about 18 months and there's overtones here of the exodus there's overtones of of Moses because Jesus is going to be the new lawgiver how Moses himself survived an attempted infanticide 
and he's out of his element, and he's raised by parents who are stressed and out of their element. What do you think that was like? And many times, many times when we go through hardship and we're out of our element, we take the unease and the disease that we feel, and we think that this means that God has put us somewhere because he's unhappy. Or that we've done something wrong and we want to flee back to the known and to the comfort. But understand this, Jesus was not there because he had done anything wrong. He was not there because Joseph or Mary had done anything wrong. He was there to fulfill an experience the sensation of not belonging, of being in a place not our home, because that is what we experience every day. When a Bible passage is referenced in the New Testament by way of quotation, we're invited to read more than just the words cited. We're invited to look at the whole context, to bring to mind the whole thing. Here, Matthew cites the latter half of Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But here's the first half that we're invited to remember. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Him being in Egypt was an act of God's love. He was loved even in the dangerous, even in the tenuous, even in the stressful, even in the unfamiliar. Brothers, sisters, Jesus experienced exile because that's how we live our lives. Your sensations are not evidence of God's displeasure with you. He loves you. And he has you right where he wants you. But that's not all. In verses 16 through 18, we see that Jesus experiences lamentation, but not hopelessness. In 16 through 18, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Admittedly, this is the only place this is recorded. There's no other attestation in Josephus, but it's entirely keeping with his character. We discussed last week how he was a a brutal man. In fact, what I did not share last week, because I wanted to save it for today, you have to save some stuff for the next, Caesar Augustus actually made a comment about Herod, that he would rather be Herod's pig than his own son, because he murdered his own sons. And so given the population of the Bethlehem region, the estimated population, it's, it's likely about two dozen, 24 or so 
little boys lost their life due to the rage, malice of the dragon and his serpent, minion Herod. And a voice is heard, Rachel weeping for her children. Of course, Rachel was long dead. Rachel was the favored of the two wives of Jacob. But what's interesting is the passage. He's, Matthew is referencing Jeremiah 31, verse 15, where in a context in which the prophet has just foretold the upcoming exile. In that context, Rachel is then brought up as weeping over, over her children, that is the Israelites, who were no more, who were to be killed in the attack, in the warfare. And then, of course, those who were to be taken away in the exile. The, a mother of Israel is bereaved of her children, and so she's seen as weeping. But again, we're called to remind not just that, but the forthcoming context. That's verse 15, Jeremiah 31, 15. Here, here's the very next verse, verse 16. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. That's the very next verse. And the prophet builds on this crescendo of hope until it culminates we're in Jeremiah 31. And what is foretold in Jeremiah 31? The new covenant. So these words of despair at loss, incredible injustice and wickedness and being on the receiving end of the worst of human malice. We're told there is a future. There is hope. And it culminates in the quintessential, the go-to passage of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Could it be that the Lord put that there so we would bear this in mind? In fact, it's in Matthew when Jesus later on institutes the Lord's Supper. It's in Matthew where he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. We are called to look at the wickedness of man and the hurt and the pain and the loss that it inflicts, but keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts on the fact that there is hope. The serpent rages against the purposes of God, but nothing can thwart the kingdom and its onward progression. So brothers and sisters, we too experience loss. We experience hardship and suffering. The dragon and his minions, they rage against not only the anointed one, but all that the Lord is pleased to call sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. He rages 
So in this world, you will experience trouble. Jesus tells us this. But he's experienced it too. Hold fast to the promise. Hold fast to his word. He is jealous and zealous to fulfill it. And that brings us to the last point from this passage. Jesus was despised, but not unloved. Verses 19 to 23. Herod dies in about four, three or four BC. He dies, and at that, the angel comes and tells Joseph, it's safe to go back to Israel. The people seeking his life are dead. He gets back to Judea, and he learns that Archelaus is reigning in his father's place. Archelaus was one of Herod the Great's sons. He was a true tyrant. Uh, Herod died, and even before Archelaus could go to Rome to be officially sanctioned as king by the Senate, on, pa- on the Passover, he slaughtered 3,000 people uh, for, for them protesting the murder of, of some rabbis that his father had just done days before. 3,000 people killed even before he's king. And, and that was a number that was sufficient that it, it almost cost him his kingship right then and there. Caesar was not thrilled with that he would kill 3,000 taxpayers. Okay? But, but his brutality was so severe that by AD 6, he was deposed and exiled to Gaul. So Archelaus went from living in Jerusalem to he died in what is now a a small town in the southeast coast of France. So that was his fate. And that's at the time when the Romans said, all right, enough of this. And they put it under direct Roman control with a governor. And that's where uh, Pontius Pilate was one of those governors. Okay. But Joseph gets back into town, learns Archelaus is in power. Man, this is no bueno. And so they move up to Galilee, the northern state. He crossed state lines and goes to the region governed by Herod Antipas, which factors into the ministry later. And he settles in Nazareth. And this is where it gets a head scratcher for some people because it says in verse 23... He went to live in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now notice, unlike the other passages where there's a quotation, there is no quotation here. It just says, as the prophets say. And people for 2,000 years have looked and looked and they scratched their heads. What exactly, what passage is he talking? No, it's not talking about a Nazarite. That's not what he's talking about. What, What is he talking about? The best that we can figure is essentially this. And this bears in how we do biblical interpretation. If you've sat through one of my new member classes, you have heard me say that you can say that the Bible teaches something either by direct reference or by indirect inference. Okay? There's no chapter and verse that says... Jesus, or the Messiah, or the Anointed One, will be a Nazarene. There is none. But you know what there is? There are multiple 
passages in the Bible, in the, in the Old Covenant, Psalms, throughout the prophets, that speak of the coming king being despised. That speak of that. And you know what Andrew had to say about hearing that the, that the Messiah had been found in, in John 1 and that he's from Nazareth? What did Andrew have to say about that? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You can hear the derision. Elsewhere, search the script as the Pharisees condescendingly deride. Search the scriptures, you'll see no prophet comes from Galilee. So, in other words, the teaching of scripture is that the prophet would be despised. He would be held in contempt and looked down upon. And so, in order to meet this, the Lord has Jesus go be raised in a town that will ensure that in terms of his society, he's going to be treated like he's from Arkansas <laughs> or, or, or West Virginia. Okay. See, y'all, you know what I'm getting at. No, it's, you're not bad if you're from Arkansas or West Virginia. But there's a cultural stigma about people from backwoods places. So, not many of us came into the world with the deck stacked in our favor where we are going to be held in esteem by virtue of our pedigree and upbringing. Most of us know what it's like to feel derided and held like we are less than. Jesus does too. But again, was this because God didn't love his son that he wanted to have him brought up in, in the most frustratingly difficult situation possible? No. He did it because he loved him. And he loved us enough that he wanted our great high priest to truly understand what it's like to be us. So, to wrap this up, Jesus' early years were incredibly difficult, incredibly Incredibly danger-filled. Lots of, lots of adventure. But he went through that so he could relate to you and me. Because our lives are filled with danger, intrigue, suffering, sorrow, lots of fear. So this week, you're going to have stress. You're going to have hurt. Some of you are going to get news that you don't want to hear and I wish you didn't have to get. But it's going to come. Some of you are going to wonder, is the situation I'm in evidence that the Lord has displeasure in me? Remember, you have a faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who took flesh that he might experience life and know your sorrow, know your hurt. So hold on in faith. Walk Trusting his word and his purpose for you will not fail. And whatever dark place you are in, you're not there by the Lord's neglect or absence. It's evidence of his guiding you and he will indeed take you and see you through. And that being said, let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you so much for the knowledge that 
You truly do get us, and you indeed ordered the affairs of your son that he might experience the hardship of life that we experience so he might sympathize with us. We ask, O oh God, that you would be pleased to guide us by your spirit, to strengthen our faith, faith that we might withstand the devil and his attempts to derail and discourage. We ask, O oh God, that in every way we would be found faithful at the appearing of your Son. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.